Hi, everybody. This is Chaubert Chaubert back with another episode of The Chaubert Show. Um, I'm excited for today's guest as I've been fortunate enough to work uh, back in the days of the original smartwatch company, Pebble. Uh, Nitin Gupta, uh, thanks very much, uh, so much for coming on my show and uh, uh, would love to know who you are and uh, introduce yourself to everybody at The, the Chaubert Show. Great. Happy to be here, Chaubert. Uh, my name is Nitin Gupta. I'm uh known Shobir for many years. We worked together at Pebble and uh, a little bit about myself. I'm currently uh, the founder and VP of product at an AI tech startup called Dory AI, where we're focused on enabling enterprises with AI computer vision solutions. And just really excited uh, to share a little bit about myself, a little bit of my experience and uh, anything that me and Shobir can definitely reminisce on. I definitely love to talk about that. Awesome, man. Yeah. Uh, first of all, can the real Nitin Gupta please stand up? Because I, this name is very popular in tech and Silicon Valley. If you search it on uh, LinkedIn, it's like, dude, I got to differentiate. And you got that, that PhD down on that. Uh, so uh, is this like a, uh, like a popular name uh, in general? Like, what does the name Nitin mean gen- uh, as a whole? Well, we like to get around, you know, we like to spread the uh, the name around a little bit. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but I actually, when I was visiting uh, my family in India once, uh, I actually asked a religious pundit once uh, about what does that name actually mean? Because I didn't really actually know. I just grew up with it, but never really knew the meaning. And, and he actually said uh, that my name means master of the right path. Wow. Uh, so <laughs> I was a little bit blown away by that. I was like, oh, interesting. So master should... of the right path. So are you <laughs> your own master or everybody's master of the right path? <laughs> well, I'll let other people decide about that. I, I'm a master of my own path, I guess. Her, uh, hey, the <laughs> Nitin's got them, the, the path down. I like it. I like it, man. Um, so thanks again, man, for coming to the show, my show. And I'm curious, like, uh, you know, you've, you've had an interesting background working, uh, well, educationally, you know, going through and getting a THD. Uh, you know, you've worked at big corporates, startups, and, uh, you know, have di- worked on different kind of products as a whole, which is pretty cool. That's why I wanted to come- have you on my show. What, uh, when you were young growing up, where did you grow up? And, uh, you know, were there any moments in your childhood or teenage years that you're like, looking back, you're like, wow, you know, that was probably those moments are like, I knew I was going to be an engineer. I knew I was going to be uh, playing and working in tech and, and even potentially an entrepreneur. Yeah, so I mean, my days as an engineer kind of started up uh, when I was a child. Uh, I grew up in a small town called Fairport, uh, which was uh, a suburb of Rochester, New York. And so I pretty much was born and raised in the same house there. Um, And as a kid, um, I definitely looked up to my father, who was uh, an electrical engineer. And uh, what really got me interested in engineering was the board level design work that he was doing um, back in the day. And as a part of that, he used to use some software that would assist in making all of these various connections throughout the circuit board. Mm-hmm. And to me, it looked like a cool video game of just connect the dots where the object of the game was not to overlap the lines or create short circuits. And so I would ask him if I could help or I could play around with that software. So he let me uh, kind of play around a bit here and there. Uh, And uh, I don't think any any of my uh, work actually made it to production, but it definitely uh, garnered my first interest into the field of engineering. Um, And definitely I'm sure had also an influence on my, on my brother who's also uh, an engineer as well. So circuit boards, what what would be some cool stuff you got working in with you and your brother? Uh, or you don't remember much of that? Well, I mean, I think uh, my father, I mean, he worked for a company called ABB, uh, which obviously is uh, a huge uh, enterprise now that kind of has got their hands in a lot of different businesses. As far as that influence okay. on, on me and my brother, um, I mean, we taught, he kind of, my brother kind of took more towards the software side. Uh, my dad kind of touched on both. Um, I also kind of uh, had my hands in, in sort of both buckets of both hardware and software. Um, and oh, so as we kind of grew up, um, uh, they definitely, me, my parents uh, definitely encouraged me and my brother to uh, uh, really excel at, at some of these technologies and, and uh, sure. especially for math and science. I mean, they're definitely uh, big advocates of those subject areas. So they definitely pushed us as kids to, uh, kind of uh, 
try and excel in those areas and definitely gave us like assignments and projects at home to, to kind of uh, also foster some of that, that, uh, that imagination as well in those areas. Yeah, that's cool. And and then was that like, um, uh, a lot of those th- moments and, you know, decided you got, you want to be an engineer basically from your father, um, to playing along with the circuit board in math and science, uh, what would you study in undergrad? Were you studying for grad school, and where did you study? Sure. Yeah. So I think those those definitely early years of getting introduced to computers, uh, especially playing some computer video games on my dad's computer when he wasn't uh, using it. I mean, that definitely helped to nice. Uh, to, what was your favorite uh, game? It's, oh, Duke Nukem 3D, my friend. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Me and my best friend, we used to uh, uh, after school. Uh, he he lived uh, on on the next street over in my neighborhood, so the two of us would uh, uh, connect over a modem connection. We're talking like kilobits per second connection. He had his Duke Nukem run, and I had mine, and we would basically spar against each other over over a modem connection. So that was that was a blast. Uh, uh, oh my no god, was that dialogue or was that actually uh, high speed at that point? I mean, I think it was probably fourteen four at the time. <laughs> fourteen four kilobits per second. So. So basically, if you're, I have funny stories. Remember, I was like on the internet, maybe playing gang, and all of a sudden, my mom picks up the phone and like wants to call. I'm like, Mom, I'm on the internet playing a game or something. And she's like, What are you doing? And I could hear her on the computer. I'm like, Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I, heard, I had many of those times as well. My parents would be on the phone and be like, Nathan, get off the damn computer. <laughs> we need to make an important call. Yeah, and then they're hearing the dial-up, which is so funny back in the day. Oh, oh yeah, man, so good. Okay, um, so where did you where did you end up going to uh, like college then? So I ended up uh, at Cornell. Uh, yep, and uh, uh, doing my undergrad over there. Um, um, I definitely geeked out uh, by uh, deciding to do a double major in CS and E. <laughs> so wow. uh, I was crazy enough to do both. <laughs> and, uh, was there stuff to relate to that? So, for example, you know, computer science, electrical engineering, were there some courses that helped each other out? Um, or no, you were just so passionate. You were like, I'm going to double down on each. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I started out with CS. And then when I got there, I saw that there was a, a good double E program. So there definitely yeah. was, I think, a couple of courses that were overlapped. But yeah, it was, sure. uh, when I got to the E, that's when I realized how hardcore it was because <laughs> there's so many more EE classes than there were for CS uh, that you have to do for a core. But, um, it was yeah. exciting. I mean, I enjoyed uh, having that exposure to both, right? But back, so, back and then, then, I'm assuming EE was more valuable than CS. Now CS is is pretty much the most valuable, you know, engineering degree to get out and get a job. In my uh, in my opinion, um, not to say you, as electrical engineer you won't. Um, that's definitely much more of a specialty. But uh, you know, would that be well, like think, a new argument or no? Well, so I think computer science now has become more. Uh, accessible to, and understandable to uh, young folks who want to really get into the field of engineering. And so as a field of study, computer science is one of the easier ones to really pick up uh, things quickly, uh, just because sure. it is a language at first that they teach you, right? And just like any language, it has its syntax, it has its grammar, etc. And so for somebody to, to learn how to program, the technology has gotten to a point where it's very straightforward to very quickly understand how to program yeah. other fields like yeah. electrical engineering or mechanical engineering i think are actually more valuable as time goes on uh, okay. just because i think uh we're not seeing as many people go into those fields and That's the true. need for those uh fields are actually going to increase even more especially as uh the older generations start to retire you're going to actually start to see companies uh raising those salaries for electrical engineers mechanical engineers chemical engineers because people aren't actually being encouraged to go into those fields um i think it takes a a certain uh mindset a certain uh type of person to have passion for those areas but it's not to say that they're not exciting or 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 worth going into i absolutely advocate uh all those fields of engineering just because each one has its own uh uh sort of greatness in it as well and and definitely has its own benefits yeah i mean we could probably have another podcast just to, <laughs> uh you know computer science versus electrical and mechanical and 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 quite frankly you mentioned like some industries i think in you know in the next few years beyond you know like just talking about electrical and uh hardware 
just to you know host the cloud, uh, the blockchain ecosystem, it's definitely massively needed, and it's not there. Um, and that's just like one vertical off the top of my head. Um, so you were in Cornell and basically double majoring. Um, what basically led to like what led you to um, your career path? Was it uh, you know uh, did you go after uh, undergraduate? to uh, basically get into a career in engineering? Or did you actually go to grad school right after? Like, what was kind of the next steps? So for me, I was originally scheduled to go do a one-year master's at Cornell uh, right after. Uh, but that okay. summer, uh, my dad had uh, encouraged me to look at PhD programs. He had started his PhD uh, when he was uh, younger, and he got a job during that time. So he dropped his PhD. So it was his kind of sort of dream also to have one of his sons uh, follow in the footsteps. And so then he kind sure. of floated, floated the idea of why don't you look into PhD programs uh, while you're waiting. And so over the summer, I then started to look around a couple of universities, especially in the area of asynchronous circuit design, uh, which was an, uh, a coursework that I had done when I was in undergrad. And I did a couple of projects in that area. And so I started to reach out to a few universities that summer, um, both here in the U.S. as well as abroad. Now, over here in the U.S., you need to take the GREs uh, for grad school, right? right. And I definitely did not look uh, forward to having to take that. I did start to study for that, um, but I knew that I'd be getting a total engineer score on that, like I did on the SATs, where it's purely great on math, but horrible on like the English or verbal. And so... Um, Fortunately, in the in the UK, um, you don't actually have to take those those GREs, uh, which was definitely one of the reasons why I started looking abroad as well. Uh, because uh, and as I started to look abroad, I actually came up across uh, the University of Manchester in the UK, and they were, the group that was over there was uh, working on some very groundbreaking research in asynchronous circuit design, and so. What I did was I reached out to my professor over there and asked him if he had any openings for uh, for uh, candidates for the PhD program. And so he take, took a look at my transcript and resume and all. And then uh, he said, uh, apply immediately. I'd love to actually have you on board, wow. uh, especially given given the experience that you had in your undergrad. Yeah. And so, so right then and there, I basically sent him uh, the application he got it pushed through and and even got me a scholarship for for the program so so i was quite pleased with that and i was like all right phd and no gres sign me up <laughs> <laughs> and live abroad for a little bit right yeah yeah so yeah. i was out there for about four years uh um uh, while i uh, completed that, that phd and it was definitely a very uh eye-opening experience while i was mm-hmm. over there very different from my experience at cornell as an undergrad and I think the main thing that, that really um, stuck out for me was that I was now an international student. And just being being an international student, you don't realize in any university how diverse that culture can be Correct. in a, a university until you actually experience it yourself. I kind of took it for granted when I was in, in Cornell that there was such a probably huge international population. But when I actually went to the UK, that's where I really felt that really uh got exposure to just how amazing that culture could be yeah and you know like i think most of my peers do that actually when they realize it more in their grad school anyways uh many of which you know through an mba program uh and then specializing in anything so like i think it's uh natural that you felt that way uh in your graduate school um, and the fact that you were all again you were kind of a a foreigner studying uh, even though they speak English, uh, <laughs> uh, in the UK, um, did you have, by side note, did you have a chance to go see a Manchester United game? Oh yeah, absolutely. Got a couple of those games, went to an England versus Wales game, got to see David Beckham score a goal nice. at, at the, uh, at the stadium there, Old Trafford. So that was, that was fun. Very cool. Um, that's awesome. And then like you were saying the, the, the circuit board, uh, I'm trying to, the, the circuit design that was very unique to what you were specializing. Did you focus on that at Manchester, um, University of Manchester for your PhD program? That's correct. Yeah. My thesis, my thesis was around how to optimize those circuits and enable those to actually make it to production. So a lot of my research, uh, actually had, 
sort of actually some algorithms that that I designed uh, that were actually very similar to some of the AI algorithms that uh, you see today uh, with respect to pricing and routing these these circuit boards. So uh, I think that was sort of my first introduction to sort of this uh, adaptive learning process, which I kind of applied in, in my PhD program as well. That's awesome. And then uh, after you graduated, where did you head off next? Uh, did you actually uh, continue with studies, become a professor? Did you actually uh, get into like a career path in tech? Well, I knew I wanted to get into industry after my grad school. So I flew from UK directly to San Diego, California, <laughs> where yeah. I, uh, I joined uh, Qualcomm. And I was uh, uh, offered a position in their chip division where I was focused uh, primarily on boot software and ROM software. So basically the software that enables your chip to boot up and actually load to the operating system. Okay. Yeah, Qualcomm, uh, I think it'd be good for you to give a quick background. Like it's pretty much like the mothership of, of one of the big chip companies, specifically when it comes to communication. Um, but do you want to give a quick background about like Qualcomm and the history Um Yeah, so Qualcomm is uh, one of the largest uh, fabless semiconductor firms in the world. Uh, you may have heard them a lot more recently with their Snapdragon platform. Yeah, um, I was uh, I joined Qualcomm um, back in 2007, I believe, and uh, at the time uh, they were one of the largest uh, uh, producers of chips for mobile phones, especially in Windows phones, uh, and especially the Android phones. And then while I was there, we actually also started uh, shipping chips to Apple for their iPhones as well. So I was very much involved in some of that initial design work that was also going into the Apple iPhones that we ship chips for. And very so cool. it was uh, quite an exciting time to to be part of that, that sort of next wave of uh, chips that went out to pretty much every operating system, every single cell phone out there. So uh, more often than not, you'll, you'll come across any phone, it'll probably have a Qualcomm chip, at least one, if not more, many more chips of Qualcomm in there. Yeah, correct. I think Qualcomm is like right up there um, with basically competitive to like Texas Instrument or, you know, somebody who has a, a chip in every device possible. Uh, very, and then uh, and then basically is when we uh, got connected in, during the smartwatch days at Pebble. Um, so you went from, again, uh, a massive corporate company um, who creates chips pretty much for every device possible to a smartwatch uh, consumer device. Uh, what got you intrigued about Pebble? Well, Did you have so, one yourself first? No, I didn't. But uh, when okay. I was at Qualcomm, I had a few friends who did get the Pebble. They did order in that Kickstarter, that initial Kickstarter. So that's how I got introduced sure. to the company while I was at Qualcomm. And uh, towards the end of my tenure, I, I knew I wanted a, something different. I, I was excited with consumer electronics. Uh, I am a gadget freak, so uh, and I was in a position, fortunately, that I could take some risks and explore a new area. So I had looked at a few startups in the Bay Area, but I knew I wanted more than anything to be in a team where I had great mentors and I was one of the stupidest persons in the room. <laughs> and who were you working with at Pebble? Well, reason being, I wanted to learn from from some of the smartest and brightest people uh, at Pebble, right? And so, and the team at Pebble was a, a stellar engineering team. It was led by Ken Wong, and and mm-hmm. and the caliber of engineers that was recruited in, into that uh, team was just amazing. Now, I'm not saying that I wasn't a good engineer, but I definitely and I pr- I pride myself on my skills. But but Pebble definitely helped propel those those skills and uh, to a different level for sure. Yeah, and what would you work on at Pebble specifically? Um, so we worked on uh, the firmware, the core firmware for yeah. the Pebble Watch. And so uh, part of the first uh, work that I did was uh, writing software for the Pebble Steel and the Pebble Time. Those yeah. were some of the second and third generation watches that, that we created there at Pebble. And it was a really exciting time just because we also brought in uh, – um, basically established a whole graphics team around the watch and then started to bring in also a, a, a fabulous design team that also helped to really bring it to the next level and really set some amazing uh, design principles for the way smartwatches are going to be used uh, even now. Um, 
And so it was really exciting to be part of that that progression uh, in such a short span of time. Yeah, it definitely was an exciting time for all of us who was there. Um, and it's crazy to think that it was just a small team that shipped to like millions of people um, that used it on their wrist, uh, which was fascinating. And um, and then uh, you so like you've gone from like interesting uh, your background in electronics and. Uh, working on the chips that were in people's you know devices to an actual device like the Pebble, and then you sh- pivoted to uh, not really pivoted. You went into a different career path, which right now is, in my opinion, taking off v- virtual realities, VR devices. Um, and you you uh, a- after Pebble were going to P- Google, is that correct? You were like one of the lead people at Google when it comes to VR uh, and virtual reality products. Yeah, so when I joined the the Google VR team, uh, I believe there was only about a hundred people total in that uh, in that group. I think by the time I left, we were probably about four or five hundred people uh, at least. And so I was definitely one of the earlier uh, folks in that group. Um, and it was definitely a very exciting transition for me uh, to go from Pebble to Google because it was uh, a completely new technology to me, and it was an area that was definitely up and coming. Had a lot of work to do in terms of being able to really get it to market and, and sort of mature that technology. Um, but also, it was just a really interesting uh, consumer product also that we were working on to try and really take that imagination that, that, that people have to the next level and really bring about the immersive technology uh, in the ha- palm of your hand, essentially, right? Really kind of give you that, that full on experience. Yeah, let me ask you a question. So you you basically have worked, um, you know, places like Pebble um, and Google on devices. You also are in Qualcomm. You know, for the general masses, what does that mean uh, working on a hardware device uh, on a day to day level? I, mean, I know it's not glamorous, uh, but like, let's say, oh, you got to create and ship a device uh, in eighteen months to two years. Like what? How do you plan something like that out? How do you actually work on the firmware? How do you work on that product, um, and you know, ship it out? And uh, you know, how do you strategize on that? Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, I've been, had the fortunate experience of both working on the hardware side as well as the software side of, of these products, and yeah. so it, it's. Uh, I've, I mean, I've, I myself have done everything from chip design, the board level software, to web applications. So I've. I've had my hands dirty in, in pretty much every part of that hardware and software stack. And so it's it's definitely not a a small feat to to ship even just a small say headset or a small piece of hardware because it is it, I mean even a I mean a watch is actually yeah. quite a complex uh, piece of hardware and software to create. It looks simple but the the depth of engineering and technology and software and hardware that goes into that is immense. And so it really, when you, if you're thinking about trying to create a piece of hardware that you want to ship as either consumer or enterprise product, it definitely, it definitely starts with building out the right team, right? It all starts out with, with pulling the right folks together that understand each part of that puzzle. And so really you want to have people who are both specialized in specific areas of hardware and software design, but also you do need a couple of generalists that can span across those areas as well. And having that that business acumen of knowing what is the right thing to actually put into that product and also things that the market needs is just having that, that team that can really assemble all of those different angles is really what you really need to think about when actually uh, building and shipping uh, a product. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely complex and the time crunch. So you definitely, like you said about the Pebble timeframe, having people as smart, if not smarter than you to collaborate with and grow. Uh, and then you do have yourself and others who are specialists in their fields to kind of execute on that and rely on each other. Uh, as far as uh, going back to Google and the VR set, you mentioned that like you could have in your palm of your hand. The interesting thing about the, the Google devices were... Um, Besides the fact of having like an entire VR device, you also, um, I think you had collaborations with Samsung and others. You could plug and play. Is that correct? Or am, am I mixing that with like Facebook? I know Facebook also did that. Yeah, um, so within Google, we had the smartphone VR where we were able to connect that 
smartphone into a portable headset. And so we started with Google Cardboard, which is essentially a piece of cardboard with a couple of lenses in it. And you would put your phone into this little cardboard box and then be able to get that, that immersive experience just from your smartphone. And then the other side of that was we worked uh, with a couple of partners on integrating a full software stack and hardware stack into a consumer device, a full, uh, what we call six degrees of freedom, six off headset that allows you to actually move around uh, in a space and be able to also have that physical experience beyond just the viewing. You can actually move around and actually experience uh, that environment as well. So we worked on both sides of that uh that uh, VR technology. Wait, so that's really fascinating. You actually, within a VR device, could actually uh, feel more immersive in the place by walking around, by moving your hand gestures. Is that correct? That's correct. So you have the ability to interact with the environment around you. So you could be teleported, for example, to the Temple of Jordan and be able to walk around and see what it actually like is like to actually be in, in there or teleport yourself to the Taj Mahal and actually see how beautiful that, that sculpture and that, that structure is. You could teleport yourself around the world to pretty much any destination that you want and feel as if you're actually there experiencing the sights, the sounds that are around you. So give me, uh, I mean, this is really cool experiences basically to kind of just hop in and out. It almost feels like you're part of like Star Trek back when you just hop in and out of the, <laughs> the Starship <laughs> Enterprise into somewhere, right? Um, exactly. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. And what is like your perspective, like the realistic time frame we're in for the VR? Um, and I, when VR came out, virtual reality devices came out, you know, again, like Oculus, Google, uh, the Samsung's. I initially thought the best vertical, which a lot of my peers uh, did kind of uh, switch their careers into this, was gaming um, as a device. Like I thought the future of consoles were going to be pivoted uh, and more people will switch from like having a console, which is more of a flat screen 2D experience to an actual device like a 3D VR um, immersive experience. It still hasn't gone that route. I think they're different user experiences, even as a mobile device is different from a console. So where, where do you think it's at? I mean, it's still, is it infancy stages? Um, you know, when you started, it wasn't as nowhere near where it is now when it comes to like millions of devices being shipped. But uh, I'm curious, you, you, you've, you've worked in this space previously. Uh, you know, what's your thought process with the, what's going on? Well, in the consumer space, the gaming industry is definitely one of the main areas where it has taken off in terms of adoption. Uh, it's made its way into uh, two or three big companies that have been able to commercialize and create really amazing games and experiences out of that. Uh, HTC, PlayStation, uh, Microsoft, they've been able to really uh, put themselves ahead of the pack uh, from a technology perspective. Oculus then came in and, and really sort of kind of upped the game in terms of uh, being able to make it much more social as well. And so the the consumer spaces, though, it's a very hard space to crack. When I was at Google, uh, we definitely looked at both enterprise as well as consumer. We, we went after the consumer market. Um, unfortunately, in terms of the overall market, the, the adoption has been much less than what we had hoped for. And I think from a commercial standpoint, enterprise spaces is definitely an area that's very interesting to me when it comes to both AR and VR, because there's a lot of very interesting applications where in the enterprise space, where this technology is, is much better suited and actually much more valuable as well as a technology, especially when it comes to training simulations or um, um, trying to enable people to go places where they don't can't physically go right um, whether it be um, say um, if you're physically disabled or it's an inaccessible area you have the ability to use vr to bring that person into that space to experience or to train them or to uh, conduct a task right so that remote operation that remote uh, execution or remote uh, presence is something that is a very interesting space especially in the enterprise play like I've seen a lot of real estate firms, for example, looking at VR as a way to even give uh, people 
uh, a VR experience of what their new home would look like. That's one interesting application, right? That's or, very true. Yeah, uh, I think another would be like uh, shipping and uh, distribution uh, from warehouses and stuff. Uh, it's a simple like application to you know. Uh, I'm assuming that would be like a vertical that people would use. Say if you're an Amazon, you you have a lot of uh, products to come and go. I wonder if they'd use AR to help out. Yeah, the logistics space is definitely an area uh, where AR especially can help as well, Like uh, especially in manufacturing or logistics. If you can overlay things uh, in your field of view to tell you, okay, what this object is or what uh, this package is, things like that, or what to do next, I think those types of technologies are really what we're going to start to see take flight in the enterprise space. So with AR glasses, for example, you have the ability to overlay some information on top of those glasses which would take cameras that are embedded on the glasses themselves and yeah. then you use AI and computer vision to be able to recognize what is that object, what's on the label, what more detailed information that you need to pull up about that object. And so I think that for me is actually a really exciting space. And, and that's actually what those kind of applications is what actually made me transition out of Google into my next role uh, and my next company. So I was going to say, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you've worked now like in, again, big companies like Google and Qualcomm, you've worked at a startup like a Pebble, uh, and then you decided to finally take the plunge and start co-start your, or co-found your own company. Is that correct? Um, or what is like the backstory? It's, um, I don't think most people know like when you and your co-founders started it uh, and who's, how did you know them? Yeah. So as I was getting towards the end of my tenure at Google, I had started to to look at what other opportunities there may be in the startup space. I had always, I'd been very heavily influenced by my peers around me uh, in those few years that I was in the Bay Area. I'd gone to a lot of startup events, uh, met with a lot of entrepreneurs, investors, and really got heavily influenced by them to really get that excitement going about possibly doing my own startup. And so while I was at Google, definitely Google has sort of that startup culture, but I, I didn't really get that sort of founder experience that, uh, that was sort of itching at me. And so when my co-founder Vivek Bunsel, uh approached me, he and uh, my other co-founder were, were looking to bring on somebody that had a passion for technology, had a passion for the areas of AI and computer vision that they were also looking at. And what we found was that there was definitely a lot of gaps in trying to commercialize these technologies. And so we got to actually talking about uh, some of the ideas they had and, and how we might be able to bring AI and computer vision to market in a way that makes it much more easier for these solutions to be adopted. The yeah. challenge with AI and computer vision at the time and deep learning was one, it was still early on uh, in terms of its maturity, but second, it wasn't really easy to get to market. The, a lot of people have tried and failed or, or tried to experiment, but really weren't getting the results that they needed. And so um, so me and my co-founder, um, we got to sit in, uh, sit down in, uh, in a cafe uh, in India uh, at the time. And we were trying to postulate some of uh, some ideas around the, around that, that coffee table about what do we do? And, uh, and that's when we actually came up uh, with the idea for the company as well. So, so now, what were you drinking for coffee, or would you actually have like tea and chai? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so it was a, a, a an actual coffee shop. And, okay, uh, okay, I'm kidding. So, so we did uh, order a, a, a nice cup of coffee there, but uh, as we were drinking that coffee, and as we were sketching out uh, the future of the company on napkins and uh, and paper placemats, oh, uh, man. we also we also started thinking about uh, what do we actually name this company. Uh, and so uh, me and my co-founder were starting to throw out a few ideas. And then we looked down at the paper and there it was, Cafe Dory. The name of the cafe that we were sitting at was named Cafe Dory. Okay. Cafe <laughs> Dory. So, I, I wonder if that cafe would come back to you and be like, hey, I want my name. <laughs> I noticed uh, that, 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 that Cafe Dory will become our unofficial uh, office. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Does what does Dory does Dory have a meaning behind it? By the way, or or no? You just did. Yeah, it because... 
Well, so we started looking around actually at what the cafe looked like and um, the etymology of the name actually Dori means thread or rope in, in Hindi or Sanskrit. And they actually had a little side shop uh, next to the cafe called Napadori where they actually make handicrafts and, and all sorts of accessories that are made from rope and thread. And so we started thinking about the name of Dory uh, and what we wanted to do. So we actually thought, hey, we're actually going to be building the thread or rope that ties a lot of these AI pieces together. So so that's kind of how we sort of incorporated that. And if you look at our, our initial logo that we created for the company, we actually incorporated that rope into our logo as well. And wow. So, Very cool. Uh, and and yeah. okay, so let's, um, I have two quick questions with regards to your company. So the first is, you mentioned your co-founders. Is this also their first time doing a startup? Was it, uh, did they uh, have other startups and they've become uh, like serial entrepreneurs? So my co-founder CEO, he's a serial entrepreneur. He's he's had a, a couple of startups in the past. He had a, a very successful exit um, in his early days of doing his first startup. And so he um, actually turned into a, a VC after that and started doing investing of his own. But then we wanted to get back and uh, back in the technology because he's he's very much uh, driven by tech, product, and business, and trying to bring all of that to market. And so, yep. so he uh, was very excited to start another uh, startup, and so he recruited uh, Ravi Lumbi, our, our VP of Engineering, as a co-founder, uh, who had also worked with him in his first startup as well. So these guys have uh, definitely uh, uh, been around uh, enough to have that that experience to to be able to bring a startup to to a successful point and so it was really great for me because this was my first real startup uh and so to have that experience uh and that um, um that success behind uh, them really motivated me to also join the company and and bring my own angle and, and experience to uh to what is uh, shaping up to be a, a really exciting uh path forward for us yeah, and and again, you, you're you're working on something that's I think re- really timely with artificial intelligence AI. Um, and you were talking about uh, imaging. So, can you explain to people like what whatever you can share, uh, like what you're working on as far as like AI and photo, uh, you know, image image processing and technologies? Yeah, absolutely. So, sort of the one liner is that we're an AI company focused on delivering real time operational insights to businesses through the use of computer vision and deep learning technology. And what that means is we can take any image or video stream and tell you what's actually happening in that scene. So for example, if say a retail store wants to know how many customers are in the store, how long are they waiting in a queue, what shopping racks are they spending more time at, we can tell you that by processing those image or video feeds. If say you're in a manufacturing facility and you wanna know whether your workers are following the correct standard operating procedures, or assembling a product correctly, we can tell you whether they've executed each of those steps correctly or not by training AI computer vision models to detect all of that and actually deploy that in a in a real-time factory environment where goods are being produced on a production line. And so like that, we can take any sort of image or video feed and then give you that intelligence so you can help better improve your business, better train your, your work staff, know where your time is being spent by any worker that you have and also help improve your overall sales and, and KPIs that you're looking for, whether it be a retail store or any sort of uh, business operation that you have. So who um, who would be like the ideal like partners that you guys would work with? So any large-scale manufacturer, for example, okay. that has a standardized process that they want yeah. to monitor, we would work with them. Any retail major retail outlet that has tons of uh, deployed cameras throughout their facilities is a customer for us. And we also partner with a number of technology firms as well to provide additional services that, that can help bring much more valuable uh, business to those enterprises as well. Where so are you guys at now then uh, as far as like a company perspective? Like how big is your company? Uh, you know, where are you mostly, where's the team? Uh, based is it uh, you know since I'm assuming since the pandemic spread out or are you still kind of in the same areas? So we uh, 
we operate in two main areas. Uh, we're, we were, uh, we started out in Silicon Valley in, in San Francisco, and then we shifted operations to, to New York um, uh, during the pandemic. And then we also have an engineering hub in Bangalore, India. So our engineering is split between uh, the East Coast and, and India. And our team uh, in the process of growing uh, from uh, 20 people now to uh, we're looking to grow over the next uh, six months to one year to about uh, 40 people or so. And so what we're, we're very soon we're going to actually be raising a, a series uh, fund and we're going to be looking to really kick, uh, jumpstart that scaling growth phase of our company. So we've established a number of cu- customers here in the U.S. as well as in APAC. And nice. now we're looking okay. to really expand on that success and start to grow both our customer pipeline, but also our partnership pipeline as well. Because partnering with, especially with various uh, organizations that can really connect us to the right industries and the right uh, players that really need to adopt these technologies. We're really looking for uh, some of those partnerships as well. Yeah, I can imagine the rollout is going to take some time. You guys are early. You have, uh, you need resources. That's the funding will come in. You can build a team out to go work with a big manufacturer and kind of roll out that. You have to start small and, and basically deploy it throughout the organization. Um, each one of those organizations will take some time. Um, so, I mean, these are good problems to have as a startup. So it's pretty exciting. Congrats on having partnerships here in the U.S. and uh, in Asia Pacific. And yeah, then, I mean, it's an exciting time. I mean, we, yeah. uh, I mean, as a startup, I mean, you always, uh, there's always that, that, that fear factor of, of success or failure. Um, and, uh, we've been fortunate enough to, uh, to preserve capital during the pandemic phase and to be able to, uh, still at the same time, establish some large partnerships, especially with some of the major telecom providers. Uh, we've actually established some key partnerships in that area that helps us roll out some nationwide, uh, services as well. So so we've been fortunate to, during this pandemic phase to be able to actually close those deals and then uh, really help provide that solid foundation for the next phase. That's pretty exciting. And then um, I'm curious, I mean, you've been in vision, uh, vision technology, VR, you don't have any, I guess, uh, you know, there's, there's the good side, there's the bad, there's the wild, any kind of stories you have of like people kind of using it, uh, for something that you like them, that, that story would be interesting to share. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, obviously technology with technology comes, uh, uh, imagination, right? So, um, I'm sure as you're well aware, there's a lot of, uh, interesting technologies that have gone through the propul- propulsion of, uh, adoption as a result of misuse or, or interesting uses of the technology. Uh, if you could go back to the days of VHS uh, or DVDs, uh, what really propelled some of those industries was actually uh, the adult film industry, right? Uh, when it comes to anything related internet. to tech, uh, internet especially, uh, obviously that industry is, is actually driving the technology behind the scenes. So uh there's definitely a lot of interesting uh, stories around how that technology has made its way into uh, both AR and VR, but also in uh, some of these late late stage uh, developments related to AI and computer vision as well. <laughs> so. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, the yeah, the whole industry definitely has driven a lot of from VCR DVDs uh, evolved into like obviously the internet and search results and uh and video platforms to now VR. So I can imagine that that was like a vertical that was hot. Um, and then, you know, you've also, you were mentioning that you were uh, while at Google kind of meeting, connecting with people um, as well as obviously a startup founder. Did you do anything specific, join like an organization, join like a, a members only club, like the battery? Uh, you know, did you go places like events, specific events, or actually travel somewhere to you know meet people, like-minded people, to build a like a network to really inspire you to do after um, your dream at Dory? Um, well, so I mean, I think so. I did uh, connect with a number of people at the Battery and uh, some of these areas. Um, I think those kind of areas definitely uh, help you to really foster ideas. Uh, before I left Google and and uh, when I was uh, about to start Dory, uh, 
there was uh, obviously I'd, I'd gone to CES uh, just before that. And uh, CES, uh, for those who don't know what CES is, it's the Consumer Electronics Show, the biggest trade show in electronics and uh, technology in the world. It takes place in Vegas uh, every year. At the beginning and, of the year, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a great place to network, to connect, to see what's out there, and uh, to really see what technology, where technology has come from around the world, and how it's being used. Um, and it's a great place to network as well, and to meet interesting people uh, that could potentially change your career as well. So that's awesome. And did you do anything else besides CES? Uh, did you join like? Because uh, I thought you joined like. Like Mr. Bronson's, uh, uh, you know, island. We went one of those trips and networked with a lot of cool founders there. Yeah, so that was an interesting story. So at CES, uh, just before I uh, started Dory, I'd actually met uh, with an amazing guy. Uh, his name is uh, Bill Ty. He's a reputed uh, entrepreneur and investor. For those who don't know, so interesting story. Uh, late. One night, I'd come just come back from a busy day of roaming the floor and meetings and things. I was already in my PJs uh, that night. And then my good friend, Chris Crescitelli, uh, he was hosting a party at one of the nightclubs in Mandalay Bay. And so he asked me to come out. Uh, and I was already in bed. I was half asleep. But I saw his text and he said T-Pain was DJing. And oh, yeah. I don't know if you know who that is, but T-Pain is the one who really made Autotune really popular. And yeah, the, like, the hip hop. Exactly. So I was like, all right, Chris, I'll be there in 15 minutes. So I jumped out of bed, uh, got ready, uh, grabbed my portable VR goggles because I never let leave home without it. And I hopped in an Uber. And so on my way over, uh, my Uber driver started asking, okay, what do you do? And I told him I'm in the VR business, I'm in the AI business. And so then he starts asking me, so what do you think about VR porn? Right. Because natural because naturally all technologies are driven by that, right? And yeah. so he's like, How's that gonna help uh the VR industry? And so uh and it turns out actually my Uber driver was actually a retired uh director or, or VP of marketing at uh at an adult magazine. Wow. <laughs> and, and yeah, Only he was still Vegas, driving around huh? yeah, exactly. He was driving around CES for fun. And so uh when I got to the club, um uh, obviously now my mind's uh rolling about that right and so my friend met me outside the club and he walks me in and tells me hey you've got to meet this guy bill tie he's the founder of extreme tech challenge uh, extreme yeah. tech challenge is a competition at cs where startups compete and then are selected uh, as finalists to compete and pitch for funding by richard branson on his private island after ces now it was really loud at the club and yeah. uh, i really couldn't hear what chris had told me who this guy was and so naturally, after after getting out of the Uber uh, with that former uh, director of Penthouse, uh, what I heard my friend say was that Bill Tye was the founder of Extreme Sex Challenge. Oh, <laughs> and, my God. Oh, and, my God. He's like a world-renowned Silicon Valley big-time investor. He's investing in like Zoom and other companies. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely misheard him. I mean, yeah. in the nightclub during CES. So, okay, what happened? <laughs> and so naturally, I go up to Bill, introduce myself, say, "Hey, I'm in the VR industry," and I and I say to him, "Hey, let me show you something that I think you can relate to." Oh my god! And so I go up to him and I show him some VR porn, thinking that he's in the industry and he'll appreciate what I have to show him. <laughs> and so, so he took one look at it and he just started laughing. And mind you, he was looking okay. at it quite engaged, and then he passed it around to a few people around. The table. Okay, well, he he played along. That's pretty, pretty funny. <laughs> and um, at this point, I still didn't really know who he was or that he was a part of that extreme tech challenge. And wow. so we got to talk, and he said, "Okay, let's keep in touch." Uh, and so then I went to go exchange phone numbers with him. I created sure. a new contact card in my phone, and I put the, his company name on that card before I handed him the phone. <laughs> And so what I put was extreme sex challenge on the contact card. Oh my god! And then he god. looked at that, and then he just started bursting out laughing, thinking that, oh, this might be a great idea. Maybe we should explore that in the future as well. Well, that's and so. I gotta. I, I, okay, there's there's more. And so then he corrected the name on the contact card to extreme tech challenge, 
Oh, and that's when I knew that I had totally oh misheard what my friend had said. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so only afterwards I came to know that he wasn't actually in the porn or sex industry, but a big time investor and entrepreneur. And so I figured, okay, that's the last time I'm ever going to hear from this guy. <laughs> I had my shot and I lost it. <laughs> but to my surprise, two weeks later, my friend Chris uh, said that, hey, Bill is interested in the AR and VR industry and wants a bunch of folks to come down for the Extreme Tech Challenge finals and demo some stuff. So he said, why don't you come along? And uh, he basically invited me down to come down to Richard's Island and, and actually not show VR board, but show VR as a as a technology. Very so cool. That's how, that's how I actually made it down to, to Bronson well, hey, Island. Well, hey, like that crazy time. risk worked out. You went to Necker Island by Richard Bronson with Bill Tai uh, based on just that experience at CES. Um, yeah. that's very cool. I mean, we have to definitely end it on something like that, but before we do, actually, I wanted to ask you, and I usually ask everybody who comes on my show, like, what do you, uh, what's really exciting for you this year in 2022 and, uh, and beyond? Well, for me, I mean, I'm really excited about the technology and, and the work that I'm doing right now at Dory AI. Um, I think being a, being a hardcore founder and like really grinding it out to, to really reach that, that pinnacle of success is what I'm really excited for. Um, I have the support of my family and my friends uh, around me, and I think that's that's definitely helped through the pandemic also to sort of keep that motivation going. And so this year, really, uh, I'm looking to kind of take this company to the next level. Really excited about that. Really excited to meet some amazing people in this industry and really show how uh, also this technology can really be applied in, in great ways uh, to really benefit a lot of the enterprises that are also now trying to look at how do we digitally transform our business uh, given the change of pace that's happened over the last couple of years? Well, that's really exciting, Nitin. I'm really excited for you and your company, Dory. I'm intrigued to see it more in action and hear more and hopefully uh, you know, hear you in the news with the funding. Um, and, and I appreciate you coming on to uh, the Showbear Show. Thanks, everybody, for uh, listening. And uh, you know, Nitin Gupta, thanks so much for being part of it. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.